welcome to stat i'm telling you all medical true crime stories and it gets bizarre karen wickiam yeah she used to work in the r and now she's sharing the knowledge so let's get involved hey funny and scary at the same time medical mysteries all facts she ain't lying <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare because crazy things can happen anytime anywhere <laughs> yeah Good. Hello, 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 everybody. I don't know what the guh. <laughs> guh, guh hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, or here are your hosts, Karen Wickiam and Mary, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, a. A. Yeah. Canada. <laughs> Canada. A. Actually, Queen Victoria is birthday. Is it? May twenty fourth. Yes, it's the May. Two, it's coming up to the May two four. So we well, call well, it, we call the May two four. We had a long weekend. So it's a it's a Canadian thing. So May two four stands for twenty four, which stands for like that's the biggest case of beer that you can get. Well, you can get bigger ones. I think you can get thirty pack. Yeah. Whatever. Two, so we call it May two four weekend, regardless, because basically Canadians. It's kind of a, a a day the cottage is supposed to, to yeah. open and you go camping and stuff like that. And then the 2-4 is like at least one case that you will drink. <laughs> and we also call like... Uh, Some people. Yeah. Not, not me. We call a smaller 13-ounce bottle of uh, alcohol. We call that a, a Mickey. And then a 26-er, which is one size up. And then a 40-pounder, which is... <laughs> A big end. It's the big end. So, and uh, in case you're wondering about some Canadianisms, that's uh, when you're going to party, you'd be like, I'm going to bring a Mickey and no, maybe a 26er. And are you bringing the 2 4? Yeah, I, I've got, I'll bring a 2 4 too. <laughs> there you go. So little... And then we're going to give her a little Canadiana <laughs> for you. Okay. Well, we thought we'd open up on a. A lighter note, but uh, you know what? Uh, why don't we just get down, get down to it? Um, we last left off talking about Claire Peck dying, and Beverly standing back and watching the whole scenario unfold around her, staring down the parents, uh, just taking it all in. So if you can imagine, if you're a really sick mind, what um, chaos you've caused. You've got Sue Phillips and, and Katie Phillips in the same room listening as Claire Peck arrests and then dies. And grieving parents on both sides. Yeah, and they just, so fresh, just went through losing Becky. Yeah. But the same Okay, same thing. so can you imagine she's just standing there going, look at this, look at what, I, what I've done, but in pride. I don't, I can't imagine what was going through her mind. I, I, I can, I think I, I can. I think maybe if there's anything going through her mind, it's just, she's, she's enjoying it. You know, that's if she's thinking so anything, that's at, just, I don't know, I can't even. Yeah, I know it's it's impossible for us to wrap our heads around, but uh, so there she is, this creepy psycho just taking it all in. And um, 
And then she decides that she needs to not enough. It's not enough that she did what she did, but she needs to turn this completely back on to herself again. It's not good enough to watch it, but now she's the center of attention without getting direct attention. And then when she comes out of that, now she needs the attention to come back onto her. So, as you know, Sue, who was in a, a in deep despair over the loss of Becky, was sitting with Katie, willing her to, to fight for her life. So Alet went into Katie's cubicle and bluntly told Sue she was dead. Claire was dead. And I'm going to just, I'm going to read what... Why why do that? I can't, I can't imagine... Like, it's like, we just re-traumatized the poor woman over again. Like, it wasn't like she wasn't aware. She could have heard what was going on. What, and then there's... She was in the same room. Confidentiality. It may yeah. be obvious that yeah. this, this baby had passed. But I wouldn't go into the to the next cubicle over and go, yeah, the, the kid over there just died. So I'm going to read from... It's twisted mind. I'm going to read from the book, um, Angel of Death. Um, by John Askill. I think it's just easier. It's one of the books that I've read. Mm-hmm. And I think this just, it'll be in the show notes so you guys can uh, go check it out if you want. Um, so this is what Sue said. She just walked in and started to talk. She just wanted to tell me every detail of what happened. My Becky was dead and there I was with Katie and I couldn't stop her talking. She said the worst bit was when Supak wanted to hold on to Claire in her arms and wouldn't let go. She wouldn't believe she was dead. She was asking Dr. Porter to prove that Claire wasn't alive anymore, and Beth said Claire still had the monitors on. And Dr. Porter had to turn each one off so she could see it was running in a straight line and there was no sign of life. He showed her the straight line where the heartbeat should have been and only then did Supak finally agree to let Claire go. Bev was in tears, and she told me she had to tell someone. She just had to speak to somebody about what happened. It was an awful time because Becky had only been dead for 17 days. But Bev was so upset, and there were tears rolling down her face. End quote. Okay, so she's... This is Sue Phillips. No, this is... Uh... Yeah, there's Sue Phillips and Sue Pack. Okay, so yeah. Sue, this is Sue Phillips, right? Yeah. So Sue Phillips, is just she's got one kid still clinging to life or recovering. She's lost her kid 17 days ago. And this nurse comes in to tell her something she's obviously probably aware of because she's in the same room. And goes into great detail about how this other woman was, you know, not believing their child had died and asking for proof. And she's giving her all the gruesome details. Like, who does that? Yeah. Like, that is just, like, I don't even, like you said, okay, so who does that? Like, like you said, confidentiality-wise, if they're in the same room, I'm sure she was aware of, you know, everything and hearing it, and she's trying to protect her, her little little girl and and she's talking about how the mother wouldn't let go of the kid and like yeah she's she's reliving her twisted 
Yeah, and so I have two theories here. Well, for, first of all, Sue Phillips is a very empathetic woman. Okay? And she wants to... Like, she, she is able to go through her own suffering and offer comfort to not just Sue Peck, but to Beverly... So I have I have two theories here. Either Beverly was so overwhelmed with the need to get this attention and come across as some kind of I don't know. Or like, she's like she's like, oh so caring and compassionate yeah. that she's so moved by this. Yeah. Or she's playing with Sue's mind, going, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna manipulate you further. I did this to you. This just happened, and now I'm going to play with you like a cat and mouse, you know? So, or, or it could be both. So, I, I don't and know. And this is if... the same woman who, like, when they first came to the hospital with the twins, like, didn't even, like, acknowledge them or say hi. Yeah. And now she's, like, pouring out her heart to her about how horrible it was to witness this. Like, it was almost like she was stalking her prey. It was like, okay, I'm sizing you up. And I'm going to see what I can do here. Like, I don't even know if she's aware of the fact that she's not, she's not talking to people, that she's sizing them up, that she's doing this. I don't, I think that she is like, uh, early on, if you put it quote unquote in her psychopathy of actually formulating what she's about to do. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking too much into it. But uh, that just no. You know, it's almost like the mind of a serial killer, right? Well, she is a serial killer. I mean, but the, but I know. Sorry, I'm sorry. I know what you meant there. But like, yeah, the early formation here. Yeah. Okay, so the world was falling in around the Paxson Phillips and Beverly Allett was uh, in the middle of it, sucking out all the sympathy that should be, you know, placed or towards those families, and she's bringing it onto herself. Uh, you know those parents were going through hell and it was a hell that Beverly had made. So the Pecks demanded to know what happened to their daughter. Obviously, you know, like, I mean, what the fuck? And Dr. Porter told them honestly that he did not know. And he was obviously upset. Uh, he said that he saw no reason for Claire to have died. And he was, it, it sounds like he was in quite despair. Like he just in shock. Like what just happened here? So, and we always talked, I mean, I talked about earlier about how asthmatics recover quite quickly. So this is another why, reason why he was like shocked. Like, what could have happened? So everybody was distraught uh, on, on different levels. Like what was going on? Why were there so many deaths and near fatalities? And it was taking a huge toll on the nurses and doctors on Ward 4. So... I know that working in the ER, if we got um, a run of bad cases, it would be, holy shit. But I can't imagine being on a floor where this is incredibly rare, you know? Yeah, a little, little town of what, what was it, like 30,000 or something? I, I, uh, I think, so. yes, it yeah, was. It wasn't like a big, big town, right? I mean, Toronto is a big city, so you could, you could see you would have, but even then, like, how many resuscitations would you do in a day like i mean at a big hospital versus like a tiny little hospital right like this mm -hmm. doesn't make sense yeah um 
all four deaths were diagnosed by the um, pathologist as natural deaths. But Dr. Porter just, no, he, he, he found that very hard to believe. In fact, he drew some of Claire's blood because um, he wanted further analysis on what happened. So thank goodness he sort of kept on his aside or marked it as, okay, I want you to look deeper into this one. Anyway, um, little Claire was buried on April 26, 1991. So having gone through so much pain and suffering and being aware of Liam Taylor's death and now being witness to Claire's death, the Phillips wanted a meeting with Martin Gibson, who was the administrator that ran the hospital. They wanted to know why the floor hadn't shut down or be under investigation. But as a lot of you know, administration, administrators are, he saw no cause to do so. So you're running the hospital and there's a rash of deaths and near deaths and I don't see any reason to, you know. This... Yet here's a citizen who's lost a child, heard heard of another death and no, then she was there for Claire's death. Right? Yeah. So, and Liam Taylor. And Liam, yeah, so, so there's like, They've lost their own child and they're aware of two other deaths, like in a small, again, small little hospital. Yeah, and happen. I don't see any reason, you know, your typical, and your typical bullshit. So, um, it wasn't over though, because the police wanted a further investigation into this. Uh, the pathologist, not the pathologist, the, um, coroner, the, the more, the coroner, yeah. Coroner. Okay. So finally there was an investigation being done. A team of 12 detectives were assigned to investigate Ward 4. They discreetly installed cameras, video surveillance cameras, to monitor what was going on in the rooms and the comings and goings on the floor. So it's not like they just trooped in and, <laughs> like, hey, we're here to investigate. No, they were like doing an undercover thing. Okay, I was going to say, how, but how does that work with, no, well, this was back in the 90s. Maybe there wasn't the same privacy. Well, I think it, there was, this was just like, you know what? We, we just have to do this, right? Right, okay. Um, so no one knew that there was any kind of investigation going on for weeks. And when they did, they didn't even put two and two together that it had something to do with this. So by far, one of the most important people on the case was Detective Sergeant Stuart Clifton. He had a BA in social sciences. And he just was a very thorough, meticulous investigator. So when he was on this case, he was all over it. He was preparing and investigating everything he could. You couldn't ask for a better person to be in charge of this investigation. So the first people that he started to talk to was Dr. Porter and Dr. Nanya Kara. So it's, it's strange, or he didn't expect this. But Dr. Porter was, yeah, no, something bad is going on here. It's not natural causes. We need to investigate this further. But Dr. Nani Akara was, no, I think these are um, natural deaths. It's just that we, it's been unfortunate circumstances. So, you know, he wasn't expecting two sides, but you always have, you know. Well, who wants to expect the worst, yeah. right? Who wants to suspect that there's something sinister going on? Yeah. So I could totally, I could totally see that. Yeah. So... So in terms of what the hospital had done, they had swabbed down every inch of this ward to see if anything came up. They even checked the water. 
they just wanted to know if there was some kind of virus, bacteria, you know, even like a, something fungal. So Superintendent Clifton sought out a medical consultant next. And he consulted Dr. David Hull, who was a highly respected pediatrician consultant from Nottingham QMC. That's my understanding in the UK is that when you are a doctor and then become a professor and a consultant, that's the the highest you can reach. Cream of the cream. Yeah. Cream so, of the crop. Yeah. I mean, you may consult some doctors in, like say, in Canada. I, I think that it's similar but when you're called, you know, a consultant, you are now, you know, an expert. You have reached the pinnacle. Um, so they had set up a special kind of war room for the 12 detectives and the sergeant and Dr. Hall to get together and discuss everything that was going on. So this was, you know, when, when Superintendent Clint, uh, Clifton got a hold of it. He's like, he was running with it. If we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. Yeah. He knew in his gut, in his cop gut, yep. that there was something not right here. One of the biggest roadblocks that they hit was the postmortems. All of them were deemed natural deaths. So what they did next is decide to go actually speak to the parents of the victims. And so they put together... Um, a family support unit, or they didn't put it together. There is a team, you know, family support unit that deal with really delicate cases. And they interviewed the parents. However, the parents, they really felt that they got excellent care, which they did. It was Alet that was doing this. But the, you know, the surrounding care, I'm sure was excellent. So they had nothing to say. And of course, she, you know, Alet, you know, she um, fooled them. And even, you know, the the Pecks and the, well, Sue Peck, even though she didn't like her, I don't believe she was going to flat out say, oh, she murdered my child. Mm-hmm. So that's another roadblock they hit. So they've got the postmortems that are all considered natural deaths and you've got the parents believe saying that yeah no we have excellent well, care yeah, how do they know because they believed that the, the, that the staff did everything that they could right i mean yeah. they saw their efforts they were upset as well and they believed that that was the case it was just unfortunate they were told it was natural deaths by them too right yeah they didn't expect anything sinister or evil mm-hmm. lurking and, and you know so they had narrowed down that there had been 24 separate incidents that occurred on the floor and that there's no way that could be a coincidence. No. And, but they kept hitting one dead end after the other. So what they decided to do is, um, take all the staff. It was, so this was over 59 days. So who worked when and at what shift and how does this cross with, all the incidents that took place. And what do you think? Who showed up as being there for every single one? Um, That's Beverly. Right. That's right. And when they figured that out, they finally got another break. And this is in, this is with Paul Crampton's blood work. So remember early on when I talked about, we're going to un- unveil later 
what his blood work was. Right. All he right. was the one that was, she was like, I think he's hypoglycemic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, surprise, surprise, it showed an extremely high level of insulin in his blood. So, normal levels of insulin run between four to six millimoles in your blood. His came back as 148. What? Okay. And how then, is that even, how, how do you, yeah. How does the body live? Okay. I don't, wait, I don't, it gets, this is insane. So then when they retested it uh, at QMC, it came back, it dropped to 90. So it, you know, almost, oh. almost halved itself. Or sure. Almost. So, um, still an insanely abnormal amount. Okay. You ready for this? So they had sent this sample out to a more specialized lab in Cardiff or at Cardiff University, and it came back as 500 plus because the labs at the hospital could only go so high. So they sent it to a special one and it came back as more than 500, but they're, or likely more than 500 because their machines can only calibrate to 500. Oh my God. So he had been given a massive amount, obviously, of insulin. I was going to say. So, um... And he was just, he was, was he a baby? I forget now. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so Clifton was told that it was possible for this to happen, that the body can produce this high rate of insulin, but it's very rare. And I'm not going to get into it, but in specific uh, situations, your your body will produce a ton of insulin for whatever reason. Some but, sort of meta, But he, he didn't have any metabolic disease. I know, but in situations of stress or illness or that kind of thing, okay. the body can, can act in very strange ways. So he decided to consult Britain's leading expert on insulin. And this is Dr. Vincent Marks. So Dr. Marks was like, yeah, no, 100% he was poisoned. There's no way that this could have happened. So he sent it off to another lab in Guilford. And it came back even higher. <laughs> you, do you uh, do you want to venture a guess? Uh, so the the machine could calibrate to five, I don't know thousand two thousand forty three thousand forty three thousand. It sounds like a mistake, right? Yeah, that's my that's my jaw going clumping back in place. Yeah. Uh, wow. No wonder the kids didn't stand a chance. That's. That's insane. That's, I don't. Okay, so. I don't even, I don't even know what that would do to you. No, no, you can't, we can't. It's like saying, I've got a trillion dollars in my bank account. We have no idea what a trillion dollars is. We know the number, but we can't wrap our head around numbers that high. No. So. Not in in relation to this kind of a thing. Yeah. So it was equivalent to the baby having, to him having 10 mils. Okay. A 10 mil syringe full of insulin being injected to him all at once. This is all the proof he needed. Yeah. I don't even, it's just insane. I don't know how he lived. I have no idea how he lived, how he survived this. So the thing is with insulin, the thing with insulin. So you have all your, your scheduled medication, which is your um, narcotics and benzos and, and stuff like that. So what happens is you get an order for it. You go into a lock room. Um, the medication is there for you to use, dispense, whatever. So say you have a 10 mils of, or 10 milligrams of morphine. You only need five. So you have to throw away the other five. Okay. 
So while you do that, there's a special sheet that you sign. At least I know this is changing huge time or big yeah. time in hospitals, but I'm just going to say this is how it was. Probably so you, back then at this time, right? Yeah. Um, even until, you know, I was in the hospital, just as I, I was um, leaving, things were finally getting put into place. Uh, well, now it's all like machine buttons and codes and stuff like but that. But there's probably, still right? a, a certain level of um, discard and stuff like that that you have to, to, and you have to have another nurse there or doctor to m watch you physically discard of it. Okay. Uh, so, and you mark down. So yeah. if it's in a bottle that you're withdrawing from, okay, there's, you know, some specific medications. So if there was 10 mils in it and you withdrew 0.5, you would mark down that there's now 9.5 left over. And then at the end of the shift, you go through all your sheets or this one medication sheet. Um, and then you look at every single bottle and count every one that's left. And if there's even a, a tiniest discrepancy, you cannot leave until this is found. Or this is, you know, how it was. However, with insulin, no. Insulin we kept in the fridge. You'd have whatever, you know, uh, different types of insulin there. You get an order, you'd go in, you draw from it, you put it back in the fridge, and you carry on. So it's not counted. So in this case, she knew that she could go ahead and just take it, fill it up and leave and there, no, no one would know, be any of the wiser. Okay. So the, like I said, the insulin was not being monitored. So, and this was just standard everywhere. This isn't the hospital's fault right. or the other staff. Well, you know, opiates and stuff like that. Narcotics, obviously they're like, if I'm on a shift and I notice that there's such and such insulin and then I go back cause I need more. I'll be like, what, what happened? Why is this all gone? But then again, sometimes if a, on another part of the hospital, say, okay, this would be emerge another area needed. They'll probably just, they will walk over and say, yeah, I, I need to take this. Uh, we're low. I've called pharmacy. They're going to bring some up soon. And so this happens within departments, but anyway, so it went unnoticed. So the detectives gathered up all the names of the staff. Like I said, they narrowed it down. And of course it came back as Alet was the only one. Surprise, surprise. Every time. Every time. Something happened. So five weeks after the investigation started, she was arrested. So this was on June 3rd, 1991. Okay, I'm not just going to stop there. I want to talk about what she was doing in these five weeks. Okay? And this is just so goddamn um, diabolical. I love that word, diabolical. Yeah. So she was questioned for two days at the station and was released on bail. She maintained her innocence throughout the whole thing. And what really set them, like, made them go, whoa, this, this, is, this is just not... Something's not jiving. Yeah. Something's wrong with this person. And that she was calm the whole time. Smir you know, smirking smug. And it didn't bother her at all. And she was relaxed and... She slept well. Now, okay, so she slept well. If you've been charged or under investigation for murder and you're put in a, what, a 10 by... And you were innocent. Yeah, and you put in a 10 by 10 or even if you weren't, but yes, sell on a little cot and you've just gone through how much in, um, interrogation, you're not sleeping. 
Unless you're a psychopath. Exactly. So or a sociopath. They had to even yeah, they whatever. the next the day she was being they had to go and wake her up. <laughs> you know. Excuse me, Miss Acuter accused of murder. Ho hum, you know, no big deal. Uh, I got a great sleep. So okay, so this is like I said, this is when it gets really sinister. It's sinister all along, but this shows where she was headed, okay, in the depths of her depravity. Alan targeted Sue and Peter Phillips. She insinuated them herself into their lives by presenting herself as a kind and competent nurse, you know, uh, who cared very deeply about patients and their families. And the parents who had either lost a child or came close to death saw her as such. Except for Claire Pack, some other uh, Sue Pack. She was, uh, but she hadn't gone there to murder, I don't think. But she she had her uh, radar going anyway. So this was especially t- true out of all the people with Sue and uh, Peter Phillips, and they saw that if it wasn't for Alit, Katie would be dead. Okay, their trust, almost innocence to the situation, compared to her psychopathy yeah well she had the fool right she pulled the wool over their eyes like okay. she had them totally so they asked her to be katie's godmother oh my god yeah they asked her to be the godmother of the twin that survived her murder attempt and that killed yeah. her twin sister so of course she was extremely happy about this can you imagine it's all coming together that's just sick yeah. something really wrong. So she started to buy gifts for Katie and showing up at the Phillips um, unannounced. At first, they welcomed it, feeling comforted by Alice's presence and, you know, feeling afraid that Katie could fall ill again. So they have such a, you know, a, a good a, a friend with so much training that, you know, she's around and something were to happen to Katie that she could help out. So here's another, you know, where you see... Um, Lacey Spears and, you know, Munchausen's type hallmark, you know, behavior showing up unannounced, insinuating herself into family, buying gifts, you know, um, stuff like that. And here even more so. Would that be considered a conflict of interest? Like, could you like, you know, I'm not supposed to become friends with my clients generally. Well, yeah, you know, but if, if the hospital doesn't know what's going on, you know, so um the phillips had no morals and ethics but anyway anyway. um phillips the phillips had no clue that alet had been under investigation for a month so for this entire month she's a big part of their lives and they have no idea and she had also been suspended and they didn't know this either so one of uh, one of the times she showed up at sue and uh, peter's house and of course uninvited and Sue's mother was babysitting. And she asked if she could take Katie and her older brother, Jamie, to the park. She didn't, you know, the mother didn't see any, the grandmother didn't see any problem with that. Okay. She th- she knew her, um, you know, through her daughter as well. Right, friend of the family. Yeah. She returned four and a half hours later. Again, if you remember with Lacey Spears, she would say, oh, um, can I take little so-and-so out with me? And then... She disappeared for like a couple of days once. Well, or yeah, something, but like you don't know what this. Or something. But this may have led to that, right? Right. Exactly. Okay, so the grandmother you can was see a couple hours at the park, but no. But even then, you touching. know, I'm going to take your your child to the park. It's 
know, maybe, you know, an hour or whatever, you come back, check it, whatever. So especially with such an ill child, what could be going on? So the grandmother is absolutely freaking out. And then Sue comes home. I mean, this is the day without cell phones. So, you know, there's no, you know, Sue comes home and she's like, what the hell is going on? And she is freaking out. So Bev, you know, saunters on through the door with the kid, with the child, children and says, oh, you know, I thought you could use a break. You know, and so they're so relieved. They're like, oh, oh, okay. Well, well, thank you. You know, that, that kind of thing. So, so moving forward on June 12th, she shows up in the evening and says that she wants to take James, the older brother, for a car trip with her friend Tracy. So this is in, in, in the afternoon. Uh, you know, oh, can we take James? Okay. All right. Very strange. And they agreed. And then she came back at 7.30. But she they knew she was going for a car trip. So that time didn't seem unusual to them. And when they came back, Alec took Sue aside and said, I need to, to speak to you in private and in confidence. She told Sue that she was under investigation for the murder of Paul Crampton and under suspicion over other deaths. Okay. But only she spun it to look like she's the victim. Of course. Okay. Of course. And she couldn't, you know, Sue couldn't believe it. Um, she was like, no way. This is ridiculous. Don't worry. You're innocent. You'll, you'll come out fine on this. There's no way you could have done such a horrific thing this is when they offered to help her. They gave her the name of a, lo a lawyer that they trusted. Oh, great. So they're getting her legal help. Yeah, well, yeah. But they had uh, friends that were private detectives, a husband and wife. And they offered up their services to investigate on behalf of Allet to prove her innocence and they offered to pay for it. It's my head hitting the microwave. Mike. <laughs> trying to like bash my head against yeah. well. <laughs> um so oh my God. I know. Okay, so here they are unwittingly, again they don't know. They're they're oh here's a good lawyer and you know you this is so wrong and here we'll hire some private investigators to yeah, we believe help. in you so much prove that you are innocent and um all this time she was responsible for their children's so you, you can imagine she's like all right i've got them working with me i've got them paying for it um and they're going to help clear my name for the deaths that i caused on her daughter and almost kill her daughter her other daughter so she i guess expected these private detectives just to go all in to find her um innocent but these were very thorough and excellent detectives. Private investigators, they investigate. They're detectives. They're not just some Yahoo that goes out and well, no, I mean, gathers I, information. I don't know if they can use the... the do they, can they use detective? Okay, well, anyway, private investigators. Sometimes, okay, yeah, so pri whatever. So, um, I misspoke. Well, no, I just don't know if, like, detective is... Well, a... they, they investigate thoroughly, and a lot of the one, people that do this are, uh, you know... Yeah, retired cops or... Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah, okay. So, part of their investigation is to do a psychological profile on her, okay? They're thorough. So, we need to know who you are 
so that when we investigate, we can have a better understanding of what's going on. We're, we're here to um, support your good character. So they start asking her questions and she went from everywhere, anywhere from being completely calm about the questions to being forgetful. So they'd ask her the serious stuff. She'd be like, oh, you know, I don't have a great memory. And then when they were talking about other stuff, she'd be chatty and, you know, really, you know, out there like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then boom, I can't remember. All right. So she would flip between these. And at one point she was, they were investigating her or doing her profile and they had her friend Tracy, another nurse with her. And they say, okay, show me how you would draw up insulin and how much you would draw and what you would, what would normally be a reasonable amount to draw for a child. She, she couldn't do it. And Tracy had to show her how to do it. So I don't know if she was playing up. And saying, oh, how could I have like overdosed them when I don't even know how to drop a small amount? But I don't know. Or she just really didn't friggin' know what she was doing. So David was like, he was smelling a rat. He was, ah, oh, no, there's something ain't right here. Um, so flat out, that was his opinion. And they really couldn't do much more if there was no credibility with their, the person they're working the client, for. Yeah. Okay. So. On June 15th, the story broke in the paper. It was all over the place. It was really catching on. Um, and so D.S. Clifton increased his staff to 24 now. So he, now he had the manpower to examine all the deaths and near deaths. And they like just went through everything, every document, every scenario, everything with a fine-tooth comb. Did I tell you? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> So now they followed the trail of blood samples. Okay. So I'm just going to tell you. The blood don't lie. Blood don't lie. So I'm going to tell you right now what happened or what came up. So for Becky, her blood sample came back at 9,666. Okay. 9,000. Sorry for, 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 um, she was her insulin level in her body. Okay. So. That came back as 9,666. It's supposed to be between four and six. That was for Katie. That's for Becky. Oh, for Becky, sorry. Okay. So, and her symptoms at the time were that of hypoglycemic shock. And we also know Paul, his came back at 43,000. As for Claire, her potassium level in her body came back as 16. And the normal amount is 3 to 3.5. Okay, so, so that's a pretty big... That's like, I don't massive. Much, is that, if, if you get into... Because you think 3 to 16, that's not a big difference, but I don't know how potassium works. It it, it just it's even... delicate. The, the, the tiniest amount that increases is for great concern. If it's a little bit, you monitor. If it goes, you know, into the, you know, 4.5, 5, you're like, okay, what's going on here? We have to be really... It's like... So once you're into double digits, something's seriously wrong. Well, the, she was given double the amount of potassium that would kill a little child. And then if you look at it, her blood, that caused her, you know, her blood, the potassium to be at 16 millimoles. And so as it does, it affects the heart. It almost makes the heart go, you know, um, 
Like, like kind of seizes up? If you can think of like an engine seizing. Right, okay. okay. And so she had a heart attack. Remember? Right. So they were like, oh, her heart stops. Children don't go, don't have heart attacks. The same was for Timothy Hardwick. He, his potassium was through the roof as well. So now they've got, okay, she's used potassium and she's used insulin. Okay. Um, so the team grew even more. Now, Detective Sergeant um, Clifton hired the following experts, among others. An insulin expert, which we told you about, a SIDS expert, so sudden infant death, because that's where, what some of the diagnosis came mm-hmm. back as, a pediatric consultant, two pathologists. You've got Dr. Porter and Annie Akara. They've also got an area, uh, area health authority, a hospital, hospital management, um, and a representative from the Crown Prosecution Service, and a barrister. So he was going all in. We're going to get all the... going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to get all the consultants we need. We're going to cross it. We're just going to get it all out there. Okay, by now, by July 2nd, it's like everywhere. In fact, it's be it's you know gone over into North America and different areas like right, that. Right, it's not just local. It's becoming more world news. Um, so while this was going on, she continued to visit. She was going there at the same time that they were actively investigating the deaths of Becky and near death of Katie. So it wasn't even just early on. This is when it was 100% being focused on that family. And she's still showing up and obviously getting some kind of pleasure from knowing that this is going on. And, and she's got two private investigators behind her. Trying to exonerate her. Being paid by the family that she murdered their child. Yeah. Okay, so... I'm just saying by the July 2nd, it was huge news. But in the meantime, up until she, you know, okay, so let's just go back. So on Saturday, June 15th, she visited their home. An unannounced. And when she got there, Katie was really fussy. So Beverly offered to take her for a walk. And she agreed. Five minutes later, Alet rushed back holding Katie. God, she made another attempt. Yeah. And what Bev or Beverly or whatever said to her is, Katie's about to go into convulsions any minute. So she, you know, I'm sorry that I'm, we know why we we laugh at this because it's so ridiculous. She's telling them something that's about to happen that she in no way could know unless she had done something. Yeah, unless she'd caused it. So she's like, you know, call. I guess I think it's it not like she was at the top of a class or something like that in the in the nursing school. Yeah, but was she? regardless, I mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Anyway, so she's like, call nine nine nine. I believe that's what the, it is in Europe. Nine nine nine. Okay. Um, and they couldn't because their phone was disconnected. Why? Because they had lost their business. They had. They were destitute but still paying for her detective and didn't have a phone had they been able to call an ambulance may have, you know, may have helped what, what does happen stop from happening though. I I don't think it could have. So they whipped over 
to Sue's parents' house and they called from there and they were told to get to the hospital immediately to ward four. They thanked Alec profusely. Again, you know, you saved Katie's life. Thank you. Um, so they get to the hospital. They're monitoring her. And Peter now is starting to play detective. Okay, so he's going to the nurses and questioning them about, about Alec. So he is 100% interfering with the investigation, which is really bad obviously he's doing it as a parent wanting justice for his child and to exonerate his good friend right but he's unintentionally causing a huge problem with the investigation the police said to him cut it out now or we're gonna arrest you and bring you in yeah obstruction of justice. which they did not want to do no in any way but they had to so on june 17th the um, two detectives arrived at the Phillips house and asked them to go to the station with them. And Peter was so pissed off. He's like, you know, you're taking us in. They get to the station and they revealed to Peter and Sue that this had nothing to do with his interference. It was that Becky's blood work has had come back to almost 10,000 and that she was murdered. They were in absolute shock to the point that they asked them, do you know who did it? They said Beverly. They still didn't believe it. Right. I mean, you're in such desperation. I could see how you'd be like, no. Like your brain would be like, can't compute. No, that's not possible. Over, she's so caring you know, and compassionate and she's our friend and she's taking care of our children. Well, that's what Peter was like. Oh, well, she was p transparent with us and, you know, but Clifton said to them, she may have been transparent about one case, not about your kids. So sure, she was telling you about one, but she wasn't telling you about uh, that she was being investigated for you as well. So they were like, oh, shit. They were devastated. Mm -hmm. Not now. They're the betrayal. Becky's is the betrayal. Been murdered. Katie's now been rushed back to hospital. And when they got home, I think I mentioned earlier that Peter had an older daughter. And oh yes, right from yeah. the previous marriage. So they they go home and they're just like oh. stunned. Yeah, and when they get in, his their daughter his daughter greets her at the door and says, "Quote." Bev's been here while you were out. She wants to know if she can stay with us. End quote. Alet wanted somewhere to hide because she was now being hounded by the, the news outlets. Oh, poor, poor baby. And furthermore, she said, quote, she wants to put her car in our garage and move upstairs where the, the press couldn't find her. End quote. They were disgusted and furious, and they're just like, they couldn't believe it. So clearly now they, they've... They're getting they, it. They, they've got it. But she wasn't there. She, no, she had showed by. up, oh my you God. know, and been like, yeah, can I, can I move in? Uh, I'll put my car in your garage. I'll move in upstairs. I need to hide from, you know, the, the press. And they're... <sighs> so the detective uh, said, annoying. don't ever allow her near you ever again. They hunted Alec down and said... Do not, do not show up at their house again. Yeah, like a restraining order almost needed. Yeah. So Bev had to find a place to live. 
uh, and to hide mm-hmm. that she was being chased by the, like I said, by the press. And, you know, she now asked if she could stay with her friend, Tracy, the fellow nurse that was helping her, you know, but Tracy was living in a, in where she was living. There's no way Bev could move in with her. However, she, she su- suggested that she move in with her mother, Tracy Jobson, so Mrs. Jobson's house, and that it would help her mom as well. She could pay rent and, you know, she could have a little extra money in her pocket. So, you know, she was... Where where was her mom? Uh, she was in a, a town 15... Sorry, she was in a town 30 miles south of Grantham. I don't, I don't have the name. Oh, okay. Um, so she wasn't like, so then that's perfect too, because then she's not in town where the press can find her, right? So her mother's name is Eileen and she's, she's older and there's, um, a 15 year old brother that's living there. Okay. So Tracy's brother. And it would be one of the biggest mistakes of their life and almost deadly. So over this four month period that she left, lived there, there was very odd and disturbing things, frightening things that were happening. They were being terrorized in their own home by Alet. So I'm just going to go through some of the stuff that happened. So when she first moved in... She put poop in the fridge again. (laughs) Uh, Worse. Um, So when she moved in, Tracy, Eileen, and Alet would spend hours poring over the allegations to try to, again, exonerate her. So that was, you know, early stage, honeymoon stage. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Um, and then when they'd ask her, she would either be very evasive, then cry, then threaten suicide, then get angry, and then do the whole circle all over again. Because she was using every emotion to try to manipulate. evade, manipulate, deflect, and get, you sympathy. know, sympathy. Exactly. So, and then later on, Tracy and Eileen would say she was convincing, like, she was good at what she was doing. Right. Yeah. Okay. So here are a list of things that she, she did. So Miss Jobson had like, you know, a pretty little house where she took great pride in and, you know, she didn't have a lot, but it was her house and it was very neat and tidy and clean. Um, one day, uh, the curtains in the bathroom were scorched and it looked that someone attempted to light the curtains in the bathroom on fire. And then Eileen found a knife from the kitchen drawer Plunged into her pillow. Oh my, that's like a, on her bed. That's crazy. Okay. Then all of a stu- all of a sudden, like money would go missing, hmm. and then her purse went missing, and Cle- then they found it later on. in Alex's car. But oh, I don't know what happened. I don't know how it got there. <laughs> Bleach was spilled all over the living room carpet, and Eileen's bed. How does that accidentally happen? Yeah. Um, no, well, I'll tell you what uh, Alet told them. Oh, God. I can't wait. And Eileen's cane would go missing and then turn up somewhere else. So this is a woman that needed a cane to ambulate. <laughs> so she would That's maliciously... So I know. Um, so this is what Alet said. It's a poltergeist. Oh, are you kidding me? Seriously? I mean, she was running out of shit. <laughs> Right. She was, so she had just ramped it up to like full blast and she's just like, now it's, it's a ghost. You know, I'm just running out. <laughs> she's running out of things to say. 
they had um, a little Jack Russell. Oh, God, no. And he was, she had been feeding him poison. So one of the days he had collapsed and she comes, no, this isn't funny. I love animals so much and it makes me so angry. But I, I picture this in my head and I'm like, again, almost laughing because it's just the most ridiculous thing because this woman was so desperate for attention. She comes running in to the house going, come out, come out, come out. He's dead. Like she did with the children at the hospital. Only she's doing it with the dog now. Like recess, recess, you know, running with the dog. What the actual fakook? Mm-hmm. Ah. So Eileen obviously is becoming more and more unsettled. So this is like, as it's going on, she's like, you know, we've got this psycho in our house. Um, and she knew it was Alet. I mean, this wasn't a dumb woman, but she's being terrorized in her own home. So here's a quote, um, again, from the same book, uh, from Eileen Jobson. It was as though Bev was trying to create dramas. Uh, things like finding a knife through my pillow. That was quite sinister. Uh, it was weird. She knew I would find things that she had done. But with half the things, she practically was pointing them out if I didn't notice them. On the night the knife was stuck through my pillow, she shouted for me to come and have a look. End quote. When the poltergeist theory didn't work out, she said Tracy was doing it to her own mother. Oh my God, this woman... What, so wait, did the dog die? No. Oh, okay. But they actually found <sighs> tablets in his mouth. I, I don't know what. Okay. Um, so she... They, they're like, oh, she got, you know, he got into some medicine somehow, you know. Hmm. Okay, Wonder so... Wonder how. Wonder how. One of the day... So there was this one day that they went out. Um... So Eileen and 15-year-old son Jonathan and Alet went to like an open market, an open-air market. And suddenly this 15-year-old collapsed while they're there. So Miss Jobson again, quote, I thought he was dead. There was no sign of life, not a flicker. I couldn't understand what happened to him. Bev did absolutely nothing. Even though she's a nurse, she was there at the market and I screamed at her to help, but she did nothing. She looked sort of detached. She'd flicked off a switch. End quote. That's the kicker. Yeah. Flicked off a switch, right? So he was rushed to the hospital and uh, recovered so uh, shortly after. They don't know what caused it, right? It's like, you know, he fainted. You know, a perfectly healthy 15-year-old just collapses at a market and shows no signs of life. I wonder if they drew blood. No, no, they didn't. Or it wasn't investigated. Um, okay. At the time, it just looked like, oh, he collapsed. They didn't know she was there. Oh, jeez. Okay? But Miss Jobson's like, shit. So that was it for her. Mm -hmm. um, Thank God. So she didn't know what caused his health care, but she suspected it had something to do with Alet. Um, so she called the police. And the police were floored. They're like, she's been there for four months and all this has been going on? Um, they thought that she would be somewhere else keeping a low profile, not at a friend's mother's place, like blatantly doing this shit almost every day. So she went home to her parents at Corby Glen, 
They were happy to have her home. They missed their daughter. The town rallied around her. There's no way little Bev could be doing this. Okay, we're getting to the end here. On November 20th, 1991, Beverly was arrested and taken into custody. And she appeared completely unfazed. When all the charges were read to her, she just listened in silence and said nothing. And when they were done, she said, thank you. Thank you. The detectives were surprised by her behavior and non-reaction. If you can still surprise seasoned detectives (laughs) by this, right? No emotion. And they said that during the interrogations, she had a Jekyll and Hyde personality. So one minute she would be very conversational and relaxed, and then she would become very cold and calculating. So if it was sort of a casual conversation, friendly as hell, charming, boom, questions, cold, calculating. Um, many times her behaviors would change. Uh, cha- so the, the police said that her behavior would ch- change again, like throwing a switch off on off on. Um, it's like she was two different people. So there's pictures. If you, if you look or Google her, um, being escorted to, uh, you know, um, armored or lock, you know, the, the police. Yeah. The van for yeah, transport, transport vehicles. And she'd be smiling the whole time. You know, looking around, she'd be in the vehicle. Like, you know, the press took pictures of her and she had a smile on her face almost every single time. I'm the center of attention. I mean, you can see that she's just living in that moment, in that second. She's not like, oh, I murdered someone. I am fucked. And, you know. Yeah. No, no, no. She was, look at all this attention I'm getting. Mm. And while this is going on, the families were hurling abuse at her. Okay. And threats, you can imagine. So when the trial took place, uh, the courtroom was packed. And so she appeared in court for the prelim. And then, you know, she was just like, whatever, no big deal. She was taken to uh, the Newhall Woman's Prison in Wakefield, Yorkshire. While she was there, the hospital was under fire. And... Gibson, Martin Gibson put out this big, long statement and said, we take no responsibility. I, we didn't do anything. He deflective, deflected on everybody else. Um, one of the nurses committed suicide. Oh, the oh, older really? nurse. That was one of the ones that helped out. Um, oh, yeah. So there's another victim, another victim. Um, and the parents were furious. Eventually, the hospital was um, taken over by a, a hospital nearby, the administration. And the floor was directly being run by this other hospital. Hmm. So, um, so she's in prison. You think she's just, like, being a good, per- uh, good prisoner? No, no. She probably started to do more stuff to get attention. Well, yeah, because she's had to control this situation, right? Right. So... One day she fell in the gym and injured her wrist somehow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Munchausen. Yeah. Um, and then she stopped eating. The ultimate control, right? Yeah. And then she was. Like a hunger strike? Or she just was like, oh, I'm not hungry. Oh, I'm not hungry. Oh, I'm so depressed, right? Um, so on Thursday, 
March 19th, uh, she stand before trial, and again, she showed no emotion. I mean, we don't expect anything from her. Now, in the meantime, little Katie, she was missing her milestones. She started to show a slight uh, stiffness on the right side of her body, uh, in her leg, and in her arm. And uh, she was only using her left leg to get around with. So they they took her to get... Um, so I know I flipped back and forth here. I, I guess what I was saying is that she appeared before court in March. But in the meantime, Katie started showing signs of having some... She's missing her milestones. Sorry, I don't I don't mean to be... I know I flipped back and forth here. No, so no, I don't mean to be confusing fine, here. So they um, she had a CT scan... And they got absolutely devastating news. Because of her lack of oxygen, she had severe um, brain damage. So the left side of her brain was barely the size of a walnut. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, she's blind in one eye, never be able to walk or talk. And she pretty much had no feeling on her right side as well. Well, that so, makes sense because the left side of the brain controls the right side. But And also, though, if she's not feeling it, not just, like, can't move it, then injuries could happen easily, too. Right, right. That's that's a problem, too, with spinal cord injuries and stuff. Um, so they said that what she had was a brain stem. Oh, sorry. They said, Yeah, they said that basically it was just her brain stem and just a little bit of her right side above it. So the left side was smaller than a walnut. Then there's brain stem and just a little bit of right-sided brain. And the rest of her brain was dead. And it was filling with fluid. And so they, this is from, like, hypoxia, probably? Yeah, so the brain just oxygen. died. And, yeah. Lack of nourishment and oxygen. It's and... pretty much, it was the oxygen, brain, brain death. So um, they'd say, they said it was just a matter of time before she would die. So, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely there we've got, we've got Katie, you know, and then she's severely disabled and they really, I mean, because on the outwardly, it it looked like she was developing fine. Right. Right. And the doctors were like, we don't know how she's alive. We don't even know how she can even, you know, mobilize at all. Uh, But they still had the older brother and then the daughter from previous but still, you know. Okay. So now we'll talk about Patrick Elstone. So wait, what happened to her? To to little Katie. Um, when I did some follow up, she, I didn't find much about her past like early two thousands. I don't know where she's now, but um. She, she was still she, she was still alive. So she'd be like severely disabled in a care home or something, probably. I I don't know because I I wasn't able to find any further information on her. Okay. I saw there was um a picture of her when she, like I said, early two uh, thousand, so she was about ten, and she was you know um, she looks, she looked well. It you know like I mean loved and well cared for, but she was um, she's disabled. Yeah. But you know okay, so I don't like the word but. It means everything I just said means nothing. As soon as I say the word, but she she's alive and they love her and um and it was a life 
ruined to an extent where she's a living being and is getting tons of love from her parents. And if possible, she's loving them back. Okay, let's move on to Patrick Elstone. Uh, remember, he also had a, a ten, twin brother. You were saying yay twins. Um, he wasn't developing as fast as his twin. And um, he he didn't like being cuddled or touched. So, um, and he had difficulty um, using his one hand. I don't know what side. And he was very slow to crawl. So, obviously, he had suffered uh, brain damage. So, we know now about Kaylee and Katie and Patrick. I couldn't find information on every one of them. I tried, I looked everywhere to, to try to find as much as I could. And we know about Bradley Gibson from when we we're talking about early on in the episode when uh, he remembers uh, what happened to him. But Oh, right, in the last episode when he... He, he's, he's, he was he recalling was what happened to him. Because he was older, he had... Yeah. yeah. Um, Recall. He was five. Um, so let's go back to Alet in the trial. She had stopped eating. She had dropped to 97 pounds. So this is what happened. She was put into a high security psychiatric hospital. Oh, great. Right. Much nicer living quarters. She had an ensuite bathroom and. I don't even have an ensuite bathroom. Yeah, we don't. <laughs> um, nicer surroundings, you know, some of the most important things to us as human beings is having, you know. A decent roof over our head, good food, safety, all those other kinds of things, right? Yeah, comfortable place to sleep. Yeah, and so when you're in prison, the point is you're not supposed like you're. That's not what you're. You're not comfortable. Yeah, that's exactly it. So now she's got herself. You know, it's gonna sound weird, but like a swanky (laughs) psychiatric hospital. Yeah, but you know what I mean. On Monday, February fifteenth. 1993, the trial, actual trial started. She was escorted with two nurses to the, you know, to her seat in the courtroom. You know, so, all right, is that to get empathy, to look weak and only, oh no, I can do it. And also to get swanky. I think it's a combination. She gets full ass attention. She gets to live in better surroundings. And then she, you know, looks for like, how could weak old me do something like that, right? Yes. Of course, she showed no signs of emotion or anxiety. She was just like, you know, flat effect. Uh, she refused to take the stand. And in fact, she became so sick during the trial that she couldn't make it to court. Um, so they played a or the taped interview with her. And just basically she left it to her counsel to defend her. She spent, like I said, the remainder of the trial in uh, relative comfort of her room with, now she has a TV. So she has a TV, a comfortable hospital bed, an ensuite bathroom, you know, 24-hour care if she needs it, and uh, definitely not suffering uh, in a prison cell somewhere. And you can imagine, too, she was probably the, you know... There are certain things. There is a code of, you know, ethics among, you know, criminals, yes, mafia, yeah. stuff like that, that you don't cross. And killing, killing children, killing children is or molesting children. Yes. Yeah, is definitely one of yeah, them. You'll get your snot knocked out of you. Yeah. 
Um, so on March 23rd, uh, 1993, on the 45th day of trial, the jury retired to decide her fate. She was convicted on all charges except for uh, Jonathan Jobson because they couldn't prove it. And another, a lady by the name of Dorothy Lowe. I didn't really get into it too much, but she did work at a nursing home at the time. And and there were some suspicious deaths. Right. And there was one lady in particular that they thought... The nursing home. Yeah, and I'm sure she did do it. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, but they couldn't prove it. And um, so she got 13, 13 life sentences for murder and attempted murder. Good. But... Um, she didn't go to prison. To this day, she's still at Rampton Hospital. She's uh, 52. She's born in 1968. So, uh, yeah, she's uh, been there um, the whole time. And she's collected $25,000 in state benefits. So she gets money as well. Huh. Uh, and this, she, she gets, um, you know, uh, a nice cozy place to live. She can play it up with as much as she wants with everyone around there. And they have, you know, like crafts and Oh, and I'm sure she exercise. still says that she's innocent, right? Oh, of course she does. But just think about she... She stole their lives. Yeah. And she's, uh, you know, not even really being punished for it. I'm sure she's enjoying it there because she gets attention. And she doesn't have to live in a horrible prison. Oh, also... So she collected money. Um, while she was there, she continued with her behaviors. I only have a couple of exa um, examples. Again, it was I'm it's hard to find between when she went and, you know, now. But uh, two of the things she did do is she um, swallowed glass and she poured hot water all over her hand. She also, she almost died a few years ago. Too bad she didn't. Um, she got a severe, uh, infection and, and went into a, uh, like septic shock, but you know, she survived that as well. Cause you know, she probably got excellent care that saved her from it. Also, she's engaged to, uh, Mark Higgy, who's known as the vampire because he assaulted and almost battered to death and drank the blood of uh his his wife so their fellow inmates at the psychiatric hospital he's known as the vampire and uh yeah they're engaged oh, so that's a uh, match made in heaven yeah that's uh you know two sociopaths and all these children that pass that won't even get to enjoy anything in life and the the traumas of their families and the tra traumas of the children that survived that have, you know, long-term disabilities and, and trauma, period. Yeah, it was stolen from them. Everything was just ripped out from underneath them. And she still gets to live in some type of com um, comfort, drawing out whatever sympathy that she's trying to do. I know the staff are like, you know, they know her. But the same token, you know, they still have to do their job. So anyway, that's it with this case. Um I can't take another second of it. I don't want to talk another <laughs> second of it. I am done with with Alet. And I mean, I cover these cases. I have to cover these cases because I think they need to be told or I like to tell them my way. But by the end of it, I don't want to hear another, see another 
whatever, until we move on to the next case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like I always say, when we're done a case or when I'm done a case is that I've got a new case coming up and uh, I'm going to keep it a secret for now. And uh, yeah, I'm already raging, raging on the next one. <laughs> That's my girl. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for the Patreon supporters or you guys. Thank you for all everybody that uh, gives a review on iTunes. We got a new awesome review from Red Rum Blonde. Thank you so much. Love that name. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. My face lit up and uh, that was awesome. Um, That is awesome. Thank you. All our Facebook family, you guys are incredible. Love you, peeps. We love you. Uh, keep contributing, keep posting, keep just engaging. Um, you can be a lurker too. We're, we're good with that. <laughs> um, so that's it. And uh, we've got a new and fun Patreon episode coming up. And uh, Mary is going to read a story that she wrote when she was in radio broadcasting school. Oh gosh, am I? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, boy. Wasn't it a um, a script that you wrote? Yes, I did have to write a script for an already existing show. It was like I was learning how to write an episode. Okay, and what was the episode for? My Secret Identity. <laughs> so, I think Pat- it was a Canadian show, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. uh, so on Patreon, Mary is going to read this story. Well, we're going to read it. Yes, we'll do the voices and everything back and forth. It's going to be fab. So if you guys want to check out Patreon, you can uh, see if it's, uh, if it's something that you like to support. Some shenanigans. Yeah. Okay, so everybody, please take care of yourself. Please, please. Be yeah. safe. Uh, and uh, We're almost through this thing. Yeah, we're getting there. Just keep on keeping on. Yeah. Uh, make sure you take care of one another, but most importantly, take care and love yourself. Peace. And love. We did it. Uh, um, we, we did, did it. it. We did it. Oh, actually, let's do that. Oh, it's still going. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? You guys get to listen. To <laughs> Hercules! 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 All right. Um, <sighs> goodbye again. <laughs> Sayonara. Ciao. Crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah, subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.